Welcome to the Productivity Podcast. Delighted today to be joined by some more of our friends from REPL. We've got Lauren Wilson, Melissa Sutton and Claire Ann Fick. Hi guys, how are you doing? Hi Simon. Hi Sam. So today we're going to talk about, we'll call it Clash of the Continents, but really what we're what we're trying to get under the skin of today is how from a scheduling and time and attendance point of view, things can be really different across uh, continents, even within countries. So things like rules we'll talk about, changing schedules, payrolls, contract hours, working time, clocking in and out mobiles and how you recruit sickness and holiday. So for those that are unaware, if you've got a multinational company, it can be really difficult to deploy for for lots of reasons. Uh, but one of those reasons is all the different types of rules you get into around paying people, not paying people, sickness, etc., and also those rules on scheduling. So we'll get into a bit of the detail, and it would be great to get some experience from the team on the call in terms of how they've seen those and where those differences are. But before we start, we'll just find out a bit about everybody. So if we come to you first, Lauren, you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do for REPL. Sure. So I'm a senior consultant. I've been with REPL since May of 2017. I currently work in the WFM scheduling realm with a fairly large client, my market being specifically the U.S., but prior, I have worked on, in the WFM mobile product space, which was something I really enjoyed. Brilliant. And same for you, Melissa. Tell us a bit about yourself. Hi, yeah. So uh, my name is Melissa Sutton. Um, I've been with RAPL since January of this year and been in the WFM workspace for about four years. With RAPL, um, I'm also a senior consultant, uh, working predominantly in the functional workspace. So getting to grips with how the product works and um, supporting with training and, you know, really day-to-day use of the system. And yeah, just mainly done UK implementation, but I've done a little bit for the Netherlands and Spain as well. So kind of Europe-based. And last but not least, Claire, you're in South Africa. Let's hear a bit about you. Yeah, sure. So I'm Claire Ann Fick. Um, I joined REPL in December 2019. I've been in the workforce management area for about 12 years now. My background is mainly Kronos and predominantly have worked in South Africa, but recently have been doing quite a bit of work internationally with various countries, Brazil, Costa Rica, and and so forth. A great array of experience on the, this podcast. So uh, let's dive in then. Let's dive in. We'll start with you, Lauren, on this one, because I know America is almost different within state. So we'll call it state rules. Germany, it's state rules again, because they've got collective labor agreements within states. But give us a feel for across America, how things may change by state. So if I run Retailer X, let's say, and I've got a thousand shops in America and across the different states, what kind of things would I have to look out for across state, which might catch me out from a a scheduling or payrolls point of view? Yeah, in the US, there there are things that definitely vary by state, but even in some cases, they vary by city within the state. Um, A few examples of that would be what we call predictive scheduling. States like Oregon, but then even cities like Philadelphia and Chicago specifically have rules called predictive scheduling legislation, where a manager just has a smaller window of time to edit schedules for their employees. Once those schedules are posted or published for the associates or employees to see, 
the managers run the risk of incurring a penalty if they then edit a schedule after they've already been published to the employees. This can include anything like changing the start or end time, unfilling a shift, deleting a shift, moving it all together. The managers run the risk of having to pay the associate a premium if those edits are made in a certain window of time. They do have to tell the system why they're making an edit. For example, maybe an employee called off or there was a spike in customer demand, and that's what justified the edit. In some cases, though, the company will not have to pay a premium. For example, if the employee is the one that requested a shift change and the manager changed it, in that case, they wouldn't have to worry about a premium. But that is something that managers have to understand and watch out for when they're editing their schedules and something that we have to configure differently for those jurisdictions. And it, it must be a challenge as well for those organizations to keep up to date if they've got uh, different sites in different states with the varying changes in legislation as, as kind of day-to-day moves on. Yes, definitely. Melissa, we're both in the UK. For me, that sounds pretty terrifying living in the UK because I think we've got it a bit simpler, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think for the implementations that I've done, it's always been preferred that we provide a number of schedules and typically for me in the UK that's generally been about four weeks in advance the manager gets that time to provide the schedule and it's always preferred that edits aren't made but um but they can be made and there's no penalty for that it's just you know things happen people go off sick holidays short notice things like that you know it's not a perfect world no absolutely certainly not this year certainly not this year so Claire, how, how does South Africa and the countries you've worked in fit into that? Are they on the, what I'd say was the, the complex side or the, the, I suppose the, the challenging to keep consistency in America or more of the simplistic side from the UK? Well, from the South African side, um, we, we genuinely have a lot of union rules and we need to make sure that we are compliant with those rules. And my experience in Brazil has been very strict. There's a lot of Brazilian compliance. And in fact, the the organizations pay penalties to the government if things are changed, such as clockings are changed or schedules are changed without notifying their employees correctly. So on the Brazil side, it's rather quite strict. But from the South African side, there aren't any penalties when it comes to making changes. It's quite similar to the UK that, you know, if somebody goes off sick, you do need to make amends and find a replacement for that do you see then in south africa claire lots of lots of edits generally it'd be interesting and we'll come back to lauren in a second to see what it looks like in america so do you do you see lots in um in south africa generally in terms of edits because there's no penalty if you like uh, correct so on, on the scheduling side yes there is quite a lot of editing going on but um They do try to use biometric clocking systems to avoid any buddy punching and to avoid any any of the managers to edit the actual clockings or the punchings of those employees. So from that side, it is quite controlled and strict. But when it comes to the scheduling side, that's quite flexible and can be changed ad hocly. Is that very different then, I take it, in America, Lauren, because actually there's a consequence financially for making those edits? Is it a more considered approach, do you think? In Yes. In the areas that do have the predictive scheduling legislation, they they do a very good job of not editing when they're not supposed to unless it's absolutely critical. However, the vast majority of stores in the U.S. with my current client, they don't have 
the predictive scheduling rules. It's only really a few states and a few cities that have it. So the jurisdictions that don't have this legislation, they do edit quite heavily after the schedule has been published. That legislation almost drives more right first time schedules or better compliance to the auto predictive algorithm. Yes. Because because there's a financial and colleague impact. Actually, in UK, Melissa, where there's no financial impact, it's just a you may, you know, disgruntle your employees. Actually, and the same be said for South Africa, we see more more changes there. So it's interesting what compliance can be driven by the legislation around it, I suppose, is the, the take out from that. Okay, so that, that's really interesting in terms of hopefully just giving people an idea of some of the variances that exist out there across countries, continents, and, and even, even within states, within the examples of America. If we think about paying people then and contract hours, because clearly that's a, a big part of workforce management and a really important part to get right, Let's start simple. So we'll start in the UK. I think this is going to be a bit of a theme, Melissa, in terms of we've, we've got it good in the in the UK in terms of rules and, and contract. If I'm right, typically someone in the UK would have a, a number of contract hours. So let's say I'm full-time and that's 39 hours a week. Whether I work those or not, you'll pay me for them. So I might be off sick, you'll pay me the sick pay that's allowed and we'll, we'll come on to holiday and sickness later but if you don't plan me for 39 hours you still have to pay me for 39 hours that's right isn't it yeah typically unless obviously an employee's request whether they've taken unpaid leave obviously that's different but yes your contract you are entitled to be paid for those hours yeah and then simplistically if we think about retail and hospitality is probably the two primary examples i'll have a set hourly pay rate if I'm hourly paid for those 39 hours so you'll pay me let's make it simple 10 pound an hour for those 39 hours and then each company or job role within that company will have rules that say once I go above my 39 hours I get single time for every hour worked or time and a half or 1.25 or double time even I think the days of double time on Sundays have gone that that's typically how it works isn't it yeah absolutely yeah depending on the contract typically newer contracts are paid at single rate some implementations that I've done have done you know over time over 50 hours a week may get a premium rate over time but yeah absolutely that should all be said in the context of in the UK I think it still applies when we're out of Europe we abide by the working time directive so there's an average number of hours over a period that you can't exceed so that kind of limits the the amount of time you can work from a UK point of view although it differs by company actually Melissa there's a there's a general theme in terms of once you hit over your contracted hours there's a, a rule or a number of rules that kick in Absolutely, yeah. So I think the most typical one being, um, you know, average over 17 weeks shouldn't exceed 48 hours a week. Right. So that that for me is relatively simple. Once it's defined by each company for each job role, those roles can go in the solution. As long as people are clocking in and out correctly, then those payments and those overtime payments, the looking at the working time directive all happens. So let's come to you, Claire, then. Is it that simple in South Africa or do we have some more complexity? Uh, Well, we do have, um, we've got shift workers that are basically paid per hour. There's no contract. It's you, you, you clock and you, you basically get paid for the hours that you've worked. 
And then we do have the full-time employees, and some of those are paid weekly, some are paid bi-weekly, and some are paid per month. So if they are monthly paid, there's generally a minimum of 160 hours that the employee needs to work. When it comes to overtime, it can either be a daily amount of overtime, which is after your scheduled hours, or it could be weekly overtime, or it can be monthly overtime. So it's it's quite flexible. And again, I go back to the union rules. So it depends on what the contract is or what the rule is that the union states. So each company or each organization is rather quite different. And we do try and stick to a standard of 40 hours per week, but I don't think they can do that in, in a lot of the cases as there's a lot of manufacturing companies here that can't necessarily stick to 40 hours per week or 160 hours per month. They've got to be open for 24 hours. So when it comes to overtime, it can be quite high. Um, there is a a soft cap when it comes to the overtime. They should only have 20 hours of overtime a month, but that does overextend quite drastically here. Does it vary by company again for that 20 hours? Do they get paid more money or is it just the same uh, hourly rate as for the initial 40? Well, it depends. So if you are a shift worker, um, sometimes it will be your standard hourly rate. If you are a full-time employee, it will go up to 1.5 of your hourly rate. There is then double time on a Sunday or a public holiday, but most of the time it's 1.5. And sometimes they'll also earn a shift premium. So if they're working at odd hours at night, they'll get a shift premium or if there's a risk involved, they might get risk premium. There's different premiums that they can earn as well. We'll come to you, Lauren. How does that all fit with America? Because my understanding is that there's less of a kind of concept of contracts there. Yes, contract hours isn't something I've ever had to deal with in the US with my current client. Of course, we have standards within the system to kind of guide the scheduling engine to give associates the proper amount of hours within certain thresholds for part-timers and full-timers. But when it comes to contract hours, it's really not something we deal with. If I'm an employee in a large grocery in America, I could work 10 hours one week, 30 hours the next week, four hours the next week, nothing the week after. Is that how it works? Is it based on demand or are they, there's no obligation to give me hours every week? That's correct. It's based on demand and a few other factors within the store. Full-timers, of course, the goal is to hit 40 hours a week if the demand in the store determines that that is needed and necessary for their job code or their area of the store that they're assigned to. Part-timers, they max at 32 hours unless they choose to pick up additional hours, but their minimum each week could be zero for a part-timer, just depending on what is needed in the store. And is that the same for the 40-hour people? If they only work 10 hours, they they get paid for just the 10 hours or they'd have to get paid for the 40? That's correct. They just get paid for the 10. Yeah, for what they're scheduled and what they work. Yeah, so again, really interesting. We've got almost the two extremes. So in the UK, lots of safety and, and pretty similar in South Africa for the employees. So contract hours, principal and I get paid for those as a real sense of security there and certainly within the UK to get people to change those contract hours to move up or down is a big old uh, process and goes through HR where 
much more flexible the the other end of the spectrum in America in terms of there's a concept of how many hours you might want me to work, but actually if I don't work them, well, there's no work for me. I don't I don't get paid for it. So real po- poles apart there, which is interesting. And, and Lauren, is America moving towards more contract hour type scenarios in any places or is it kind of sticking with the more flexible approach? Not that I've heard. It, it seems like it's sticking toward the more flexible approach. There are, with my current client, there are ways that we try to make sure the employees get more hours if they want more hours, things like cross-training them on different roles within the store so that they could pick up shifts in different areas of the store. If, for example, they're a cashier as a primary job and there just aren't enough hours for cashiers, they can cross-train in other sections of the store to help fill that gap if they really do have kind of a personal minimum that they'd like to meet, of course, in order to be able to budget and pay their bills, they know they need to be working a certain amount of hours each week. There are things that the company and that the stores can do at their levels to help the employees reach those minimums. Interesting. And Claire, we'll come back to you because you talked about manufacturing and warehouses. Before we move into things like clocking and mobile, I think two other areas that are always interesting are sickness so how you account for sickness or what is sickness or holiday or leave unpaid leave and then loo time and you kind of touched on it Claire in terms of bank towers so some of my history I've done some work in the Nordics and I know their holiday and absence and sickness rules are crazy you can share paternity and maternity leave between the mother and the father you get different amounts depending on the the number of children you have. There's lot lots of lots for what us in again in the UK is relatively simple rules. I think more complexity out there. Clay, how do holidays, absence, sickness work in South Africa? Is there a, a structured process for that that people get a certain amount, or is it very different by organisation? Yeah, so we we do have a structured amount and it depends on how many years you have been employed at the current organization. So you generally start on 15 days of of your annual leave per year. And the longer you are employed, I think after about five years, it then goes up to 20 and then slowly up to 27 days, if I'm correct. Um, When it comes to sick leave, there is 30 days of sick leave, which is spanned over three years. So it roughly equates to 10 days per year, but you know you don't necessarily always use all 10 days in one year. Once you've completed the sick leave, you then go into an unpaid leave. Now, when it comes to maternity and paternity, for maternity, there are four months of maternity leave. And again, it depends on how many years you've been employed at the company and whether or not it will be fully paid or if you will only be paid for 50% or 75% of that. For paternity leave, um, it's recently changed now to seven days of paternity leave. Yeah, there, there are a few other leave categories, but those are the most important ones. Okay, so let's see how does the UK stack up against that, Melissa? Uh, Yeah, I think it's a little bit less uh, complicated again, isn't it? So uh, typically um, maternity leave is paid for the first 39 weeks and depending on whether, you know, whether it's a new employee or somebody with a long service history would determine how much of that they get paid by the company. In my experience, um, the sickness 
part of it depends based on the company that you're working with. So some companies, some older contracts might get a much longer period of company sick pay. Employees within the UK always get their SSP, so government paid uh, kind of minimum statutory sick pay for 28 weeks. And holiday, um, again, similar really. So it depends on how long the employee's been with the company. Uh, but by UK government, they must have five, I think it's five and a half weeks, 5.6 weeks of paid leave as holiday. When and we're up to maybe two weeks paternity still now, I think. Yeah, but um, and then they're just coming in with shared parental, aren't they? I think that's fairly new in the last couple of years where you can split your parental leave based on the parents. So you could go half and half if both parents work for the company and I think again a bit like South Africa we've got people get enhanced holiday for long service yeah. and we've also in the UK got the complexity of bank holidays some people have those in their holiday entitlement some don't some get paid slightly differently so that's a, a bit of complexity for those was it 12 or 14 so days a year again even even on that small note lots and lots of variance in terms of how things are different so ho- hopefully we're trying to build up a picture of you know, those multinational organisations, there's some real challenges across continents, even across countries about some of the rules that they have to document, work out and then systematise, which all comes back to the beauty of having a workforce management system where you've got all these rules in that will enact when the right parameters are, are met. Let's finish on payment part and the employee part. So, you talked about biometric clocking before Claire in South Africa. Is that is that the most common method in your part of the world of clocking in or does it vary? It is the most common, um, the biometric system. Um, th- there's quite a bit of fraud when it comes to how employees clock. So you can't leave your finger at home. That's why we do biometric clocking here. But next to that, we do also use the proximity badges, which unfortunately do get left at home quite a bit. And newly starting to get introduced into South Africa is also the the mobile punching, so using your cell phone to clock in. Primary primary method biometrics, and and it's all really geared around buddy punching. People would call it so people clocking each other in and out, or people falsifying clockings. That's the the primary the primary reason to make sure it is a physical person. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And Melissa, how are you seeing it in the UK? Yeah, so it might just be the implementations that I've done, but typically we've just used a clock, so a clock on the wall, um, similar to to what we've just said around proximity, badges, swipe cards, that sort of thing. Uh, With my current client at the minute, we're using mobile app, so we're using the personal device to clock in when we arrive at site. We have got biometrics. It's it's something that I've used before, and like using that as a two-factor authentication to make sure it is you, you have your finger with you and then you put your badge number in as well to clock in. It's that foolproof mechanism, isn't it, of unless you've got your finger hanging on a wall by a bit of string, which is <laughs> going to be painful at some point. Um, it is you. It is you. And Lauren, where are we in America with that? Again, nothing interesting for me to share here. I've never experienced anything with any of my implementations around clocking or biometrics or anything like that. If we finish on mobile then, I think, again, Claire, you talked about that starting to become one of the common methods of clocking. Are you all seeing, if we start with you, Claire, mm. mobile for employees, so the apps that all the vendors provide with you know, shift swap, shift bid, checking your pay slip, clocking in and out, maybe not using all that functionality, but is it 
at the top of the agenda now for lots of organisations to have that and allow the colleagues that want to use it the access to use it? Yes, definitely. And I think now with COVID as well, it, it's almost a must. You know, when you've got the biometric clocking, there's hundreds of people all touching the same device, whereas if you're punching from your mobile using a mobile app, it's yours. Um, the, the only issue that we do have here in South Africa is a lot of the employees complain about the cost for using their own mobile to do the punching, that there is a small data cost that goes with all these apps that allow you to punch. So if the company is willing to pay for that mobile data, then the employee is willing to use their mobile phone. Do you see, sorry, Melissa, do you see much in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's one of the big sellers in terms of um, when you move towards a WFM, it's a massive win for the employee because they can, you know, book their own holiday from home. They haven't got to go and get a form and then submit it to the manager. You know, they can see their schedule. It's brilliant. And it, it really is taking off in the implementations that I've worked on over the last kind of three or four years. They absolutely are using their phones for clocking. It's a big win over the biometric because Sometimes you might get a small scratch on your finger and then that changes your fingerprint and it may not, might not let you clock in. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. You don't, have to, you don't have to chuck your finger off either and put it on the wall so someone else can uh, no, no, clock in for you. No, absolutely not. Um, there, there has been some concerns about somebody borrowing your phone to go into work and clock in but or you logging in as somebody else onto the app. But with the kind of things like Face ID and the, your biometric on your own personal device, um, it really is restricting that worry. Like Claire said, with the whole COVID situation this year, minimising cross-contamination contact, having things on your own device that you're responsible for keeping clean and hygiene, it can only be a, a win-win for everybody. And Lauren, have you seen, I know you've not seen any biometric, do you see much mobile app usage in the clients that you've worked with? Yes, definitely. Like Melissa said, it's it's a huge plus for the employees and the managers both to be able to utilise a mobile app to view their schedules. They don't use clocking in my experience, just with my current, my current client, but it is used widely by employees to swap shifts with other employees if they don't like their times or their days or pick up available shifts where the store needs coverage. They can view based on their job code, what days and times the store could use them and they can claim those shifts from their phone, things like that. It's, it's definitely widely used with my current client. So we've got our first true consistent similarity, I think, across uh, across the three of you in terms of the, the rise of mobile, which we've touched on in one of the earlier podcasts. We'll pause there. I mean, we've only really scratched the surface and we've, we've darted around a few areas, but hopefully we've painted that picture of the complexities of managing these multi-country or within certainly the likes of America, Germany, within the country organizations where there's different rules based on unions or labor agreements or state policies i think the one thing we've not really said is the art clearly is being able to document all this capture all this make sense of it because some of it's written some of it's unwritten some of it becomes custom and practice which isn't necessarily what the legislation is or enforces and clearly when you put that into a solution it starts to enforce those rules in, in the correct way as long as they're capturing the re- correct way. That's where the guys at REPL come into their own, helping with all those requirements, gatherings and the implementation and the, the thought leadership in there. So as ever with this series, we'll reference the links to the REPL website and where to find people. But just want to finish off by saying, Lauren, Melissa, Claire, really appreciate your input and value 
some of those experiences that you've shared. And thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Simon. Thanks. Enjoy speaking with you all.